are in Psalm 23 today as we continue in our series entitled Rest, Quiet Souls, and Quickened Hearts. And so um, today as we dive into uh, Psalm 23, we are uh, finding ourselves kind of shifting from the concept that we've been pursuing, namely what does it mean to have a quiet soul, to now what does it mean for that to be the soil out of which a quickened heart grows. So this will make sense. If this is your first Sunday, it'll make sense as we go. But we find ourselves in Psalm 23, a passage that whether you've been in the church forever or whether you might not have been in the church much at all, you've probably heard portions of this before. Um, And that's both The familiarity with it is both a blessing and it's a curse. Um, The blessing is that these verses will not be new to many of you, and they will in some ways ring uh, as great news to your heart. But in other ways, familiarity is a problem because you trick yourself into thinking you know everything that there is to know about it. And so um, what we're hoping to see that would happen in this moment is that God would Uh, teach us from a wonderfully kind of familiar passage for many, teach us the newness of of the work of His Spirit through it. So uh, I want to read Psalm 23, and then I'll pray, and then we'll kind of dive, dive into it. Psalm 23, a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, And I shall not want. And he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside still waters or waters of rest. And he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. And your rod and staff, they comfort me. His word goes on to say, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely or only goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, may the beauty and weight and precious promises and calls to action that we need to hear leap off the page. I ask, O God, that your Holy Spirit would not leave us alone. That right now in this moment there would be an awakening, a quickening, a burning in the soul. That there would be a desire that would be lit anew for you. That Father, this would not be business as usual. This would not be a common place. This is not checking off a religious box. This is communing and meeting with you. Meeting with people whose many of these individuals' have lives have been invaded by your great grace. And so Lord, there is much to celebrate. There is much to stand in awe of. And so, Lord, don't leave us alone. Stir us up. Pull us away from sin and draw us ever so near to your wonderful presence. 
we ask this so that the light that you have created us to give off would shine brightly and would not be eclipsed by sin or by sadness. Father, make us shine for your name. We pray it in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Funerals are a very difficult thing, especially for those that you have loved so dearly. And almost without fail, when I go to encourage or to comfort someone who is at a funeral, who has experienced the loss of someone near, I will go to this very passage, Psalm 23. And I take them there because this is something that I have found as I have walked with many people through some really dark times. I have found that it's the most familiar passages that God uses when we are brought to our lowest and most humble estates that he uses to really stir the soul to life. And there is a, probably no greater passage that reminds us of God's promises to comfort and to draw alongside his people than we find right here in Psalm 23. But also what we find in Psalm 23 is something that God awakened me to while I was away this summer. And when I was spending some time in God's Word, He met me. And He stirred me up. He gave me rest in Him. But He began as I was studying to show me that this passage is not only so that I would behold and see the greatness of my God, but it is actually meant to be a grid through which I look on what it means for me to love my neighbor as myself. So what I pray that God would have us do is to, yes, see God as a great shepherd today. As one who loves us in ways that we will never be loved by any other relationship. But also to see this passage with fresh, fresh lenses that it's not only an invitation to know God, but it's an invitation to help make Him known in these specific ways with the people that we're around. So today's lesson is this, that out of quiet souls grow quickened hearts. Out of a still, quiet soul that's at rest before the living God, that is the fertile soil out of which hearts of love for others grow. If we're not still, and we're not quiet, and we're not at rest, what happens is loving our neighbor becomes only a duty. Only an obligation and something that exhausts us. But it's when we are still before the Lord and quiet before Him that we find rest for the soul, the rest under the rest, the rest of significance and purpose and value. And out of that soil grows a burden that as many people as possible, as long as God gives us breath, that they would experience that rest as well. Making disciples, making those who love Jesus, it could be encapsulated with that. Find rest in God alone and give His rest away. And that's what we're aiming for in this series. Rest, quiet souls, and quickened hearts. And so the aim of today could be summarized this way. Quiet souls behold God. That's what it means to be quiet. It's not just to shut your mouth. It is to look at God and behold Him. To know Him and to love Him. So quiet souls behold God. And as you see Him, your heart will be quickened to love others to what you've seen. Love others to Him. 
Love is to get people to God. And so that's my aim for you today. I just, I want you to see God. I want you to see Him. I want you to love Him. I want you to know of His love for you. And as a result, He's going to quicken the still heart. And I pray use this passage to say, oh, and this is what it looks like to love our neighbor. Now, as I was praying this summer, I was reading a book by Zach Eswine entitled The Imperfect Pastor, and he had me in mind when he wrote it. And so I was reading it, and he points to the passage in Isaiah 50, verse 4, that makes this connection, that helping people to grow in their faith, helping people to be followers of Jesus, is finding rest yourself and giving that rest away to the weary soul. So I want to look at Isaiah 50, verse 4 for a second. And here's the connection. This is a passage that's talking. God is speaking of the coming Messiah that he is going to send to rescue his people. So the me there is Jesus. But it's also all those who trust in Jesus find him as their identity. So the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So you get this picture. God has granted to what we want to say right now, God has granted to the followers of Jesus a tongue of those who kind of understand God's word and the ability to give it away. He has done that in order that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now, in Hebrew poetry, many times there's parallelism. So they'll state something and they'll state it again, but they'll state it a second time to explain the first portion. And that's what's happening here. So he repeats himself, but he repeats himself so that you understand the first part. He says, morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. Now let's put it together because I know you probably lost as a goose in a snowstorm. So here's how it rolls. God meets us in the morning and awakens us. And he's talking about an awakening of the soul. He awakens our ears to spiritually hear and our tongues to speak life, our minds to understand. He awakens us in stillness and in quietness that we might know him, but also so that, what does he say, I may know how to sustain with a word those who are weary. You see the connection? I will awaken you that you might know me. In order that, as you know me, you might give me away. You might sustain with a word those who are weary. It is quiet souls find rest in God alone, but quiet souls will be quickened to give away that word to weary souls. So, the temptation will be when you hear a call for stillness and rest, that you allow it to roll into slothfulness and laziness. But the quiet soul is a soul that beholds the beauty of God and then will not rest until they can give it away. So in light of this, Psalm 23 is not only the platform upon which we know God, but it's a grid through which we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, I don't know how you view what you're doing right now. You woke up, got yourself ready. Some of you better than others. No, just kidding. <laughs> Got yourself ready. You came in, and you're sitting down. We've sung some songs. Now some man's standing up, and he opens a book, and he shares some words. What are we doing? Why'd you come? 
Some of you came because it's what the religious do. They come. And our culture only feeds that. Like, it is to attend a gathering is to be spiritual. And it makes me better than my neighbor who doesn't go. And so one day when judgment comes, I'm going to be okay because I did what I was supposed to do. That could not, if that were the case, Jesus did not need to die. Because you could just come and attend events. But doing good things doesn't wash away the core need of the soul. And that is, doesn't grant forgiveness of sin and the removal of shame and guilt. You will not remove shame and guilt by trying to be better than your neighbor because there's always going to be some other neighbor that's better than you. Better than me. So why do we gather? We gather because God promises to meet with His people. We gather because God wants us to be disciples. That is, followers of Jesus. And followers grow. This is a place where we meet with the living God. This is eternity at stake. There is your faith wants to give up and run away. And God is going to use not just a book. It's His Word. He's going to use it to sustain your weary soul. He's going to use it to give you hope in the midst of darkness, to reorient your sadness into life. He's going to use you to speak encouragement to somebody else. We gather because this is the platform through which we grow as followers of Jesus. That's why we do community groups or we have O2 groups or ways that you can love one another here at this church. It is not an obligation box to check off. It is a relationship to cultivate. I need you. You need me. We need one another. All so that we might grow to look more like Jesus. Do you see what we're doing as a means that God has ordained to help us to grow to life? This is essential to true living. We're gathering with people who have been radically reoriented by the living God. And we get to hear His Word. A Word that is better than any other word. And interact with His people. People who have been changed and have a story to tell. And so as you look at Psalm 23 and as we go through... There's two things that I'm hoping that happen as we just move through every portion of the passage. One is that you would look at the greatness of our God towards His children. You would just see God. There is no greater purpose for reading the Bible. See Him. Know Him. Look at Him. But two, that you would look at Psalm 23 as a description of what it looks like when you ask the question, How do I grow as a follower of Jesus? How do I love my neighbor as myself? I want to argue that Psalm 23 is both. It's not just telling you of a good God. It's giving you a message to tell and tells you how to love your spouse, your kids, your coworkers. This is a manual for making disciples. So let's look at it through those lenses. Verse 1. I want you to read verses 1 and 2 with me. And we'll read the first part of verse 3, ending with, He restores my soul. So let's read it out loud, because this pa- these passages, these words are remarkable, and I'm just praying that God would cement them in your brain. You'd memorize them. They'd sink deep down. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. That's right. How does this, sorry, stop. So, but I mean, you're reading the words, so it's good. Um, how does he start? The Lord is my shepherd. God wants to be known as a shepherd. All throughout the Bible, there are these echoes of God being called the shepherd. And when you hear the word shepherd, although we don't understand sheep herding very well in our context, most of us do not, there is this, just this common air and aroma that that means he's caring, that he is gentle, that he is loving, and all of that is right. But it also means that he's leading sheep. And sheep are stupid. There is no other word for them. Dumb as dirt. They are not the most brightest bulbs in the bunch. They struggle. And friends, we are being compared to sheep. It says in Psalm 78, verse 52, when God is described as a shepherd, it says this, Then He led out His people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. That is who we are. We are sheep who need to be guided. And although this passage is highlighting more about Him as shepherd than it is about our stupidity and our sheep-likeness, it still must be said the greatness of him being a shepherd is only accentuated and understood in light of us being lowly sheep. The distance is meant to be there in order that the help is really felt. And so if you are offended and bothered by being called spiritually stupid, then you might not have ever understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're not only spiritually stupid, we're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. We are not sufficient. And any believer who hears that, they're like, yes, that's me. And he is a good shepherd. And anyone who hears that and says, stop calling me that, you just need to know the love of God in a fresh way. To the degree that you're desperate is the degree that you see the beauty and greatness of God as shepherd. He loves you, and He cares for you. And the only way you will know that is to be humble enough to repent of your sins and to say, nothing in my hands I bring. All I can do is cling to the cross. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The only way you will experience the second part is to say, I'm a sheep. He's the shepherd. And in Him I have everything. To be near to Him is enough. And on that last day when we're in His presence face to face and there is nothing between us and Him and this full embrace of Him as shepherd, we will be able to fully say, I have no wants at all. The Lord is our shepherd. And how does He shepherd us? He makes us lie down in green pastures. Friends, sheep are stupid because they don't know where to eat. I'm telling you, if I'm hungry and you lay a big burger right in front of me, and you say, this is yours to eat. I don't have to be told twice. I just will pick it up and eat. The sheep has to be made to eat it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He has to reorient the direction of the sheep, has to set it down and say, make it happen. Eat. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. And there's just this picture of being all bound up in the soul that we, trying to order and run our own lives, we will not stop. God must grip us. He must stop us in order that we might be still before Him. He's got to lead us to the green pastures. That is, lead us into His presence to feast upon Him. And lead us beside the still waters. The picture is of, the, of a brook that runs and the waters are as smooth as glass. But the word that's used for that stillness is the word rest. Waters of rest. He's meaning to communicate with a physical image something that's deeper than just a pretty stream. It has come to the place where real rest is found. Come to me, the shepherd, and find significance and hope and purpose. Find rest for your soul. Find me. I'm all you need, is what the Lord is saying to us today. I am the shepherd. And how do I know that he is speaking about coming to Jesus, coming to him as shepherd? Is because all throughout the Bible, there are these pointers that the Messiah will be the shepherd. He will be the shepherd. I want you to listen to Genesis 49, 24, when it says, Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now what you don't understand by just seeing this verse by itself is this. This is in a poem at the end of Genesis. Genesis is not filled with poetry. It's just scattered with poetry. And the poetry in the Old Testament, when it's not the majority, it is actually meant to help us understand the narrative. So ultimately, he's saying the whole book of Genesis is actually pointing us to how we need a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to be one who is called the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And that's why when you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, you hear Jesus describing himself this way. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, this is John speaking of Jesus, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How? Through Jesus. Do you hear this? The lamb becomes the shepherd. The sacrifice becomes the savior. And although the glory of God, he came to be a lamb like us, to be a sheep like us. He died the death that only he as the perfect sacrificial lamb could die. So that when he was raised from the dead, he would be characterized as a great shepherd of the very people he gave his life to. Both lamb and shepherd. And he sacrificed his life so that sinners like you and me, through humble repentance of our sins, could find him, what does it say? Guiding us to springs of living water and wiping away every tear from our eyes. That's what it means for God. That's what it means for our Savior, Jesus Christ, to shepherd us. And it says in here that the shepherd restores the soul. Now, I have a video for you. It's a video of a sheep. 
This is a sheep on its side. I know it's a little fuzzy, but stay with me. Sheep, if they're on their side or their back, cannot get up. No lie, they cannot do it. Impossible. This sheep will die unless something comes and sets it upright. And so this man, a shepherd, comes, turns over the sheep, and then it runs around. And this is the picture. That's us right there. Aren't we cute? Aren't we cute? Just shaking. That's what we do. That's us. No lie at all. If a sheep is on its side or back, it cannot get up. Do you know what that condition is called by shepherds? It's called that the sheep is cast down. The sheep is cast down. And the only way that the cast down sheep can be helped from death is for the shepherd to come and restore the cast down sheep. And it's like if you hung somebody upside down, the blood rushes to the head and there comes a point where that person will die if they're left upside down. The sheep will literally die because the blood will not flow anymore just on its back and it can do nothing to fix itself. And the shepherd comes to the cast down sheep and restores the sheep. And this is why David, a shepherd, picks up on this throughout the Psalms when he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in a state of sadness that you're not flipping upside down? You are stuck in this sadness. Hope in God. Hope in the fact that I'm a good shepherd who will not let you stay that way, although it feels like you're about to die. Here the passage says, the Lord is our shepherd and he specializes in restoring the soul to setting us upright. Friends, I have news for you. Light will shine into your darkness. Come to Jesus. It might not happen exactly how or when, but the promise is he is a good shepherd. He will make you lie down because that's your greatest need. He will do anything that He has to in order to stop you that you might be still before Him and worship Him. And in so doing, He'll take your upside-down emotions, your upside-down thinking, and He'll set you upright and restore your soul. This is the Lord as shepherd. And this is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, speaking of Himself, He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he lays down his life. He sacrifices his life for the sheep. And now he sets a contrast between a hired hand and a good shepherd. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, you hear that? He owns us. When that hired hand sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am a good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me. He knows every pain you've ever experienced, everyone you will experience, every fear, every tear. He knows you better than you know yourself. Things that you've never told anyone, the good shepherd knows you. And he knows you by name. And it says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. If he's going to go to that degree, 
It's a promise that he keeps every one of his promises for you. Every one of his promises for you. And he goes on to say, I must bring them also. He says, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is when you shift from enjoying Jesus as your shepherd to there are people who do not know the rest that the shepherd can give. I must give my life like my Savior gave his life for me. I must give my life that others might know Jesus as shepherd so that there would be one flock and one shepherd. That's why Psalm 23 matters. It matters because you see the glory of the living God, but it's also what it means for you to love those who are closest to you. What it means to be a parent, what it means to be a spouse, what it means to be a coworker or a roommate, it is to get them to God. To rest before the living God and to trust His promise that He restores the soul. So, love and look at the greatness of God. But also, as you have that quiet heart before Him, know that quiet souls grow quickened hearts of love. And that's why he goes on to say in Psalm 23, that good shepherd, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Those who are beside the still waters, they will live lives of righteousness. He shapes you. He changes you. And he will lead you. You hear? That's what the shepherd's doing. He leads you in paths of righteousness for your namesake. So another way to say it is, when you stand in awe, awe always should lead to action. And still souls will have active hands of love and obedient feet and quickened hearts of mercy. This is the way the Spirit of God has worked all throughout history. I remember, over the summer I was in Boston. I don't know if you've ever been to Boston, but in Boston there's a, there's a huge kind of it's almost like Central Park in New York, but it's smaller, and it's called Boston Common. And Boston Common is this huge field in Boston. And back in the revolutionary times, the field was meant for multiple things. It was where the children played. It was also where criminals were executed, and many times those happened together. Children played here. People were hung for their crimes here. And it was also a place where they would just make major announcements, where they would have their concert venues, or they would have their gatherings to speak. And as you're in Boston, they're always ad nauseum talking about the American Revolution. And it's just really cool to be there and to see these different sites. But what was neat for me was alongside this, I was also reading on revival. And as I stood in Boston Common... I had also read that George Whitfield stood in this very place and without amplification, he spoke the gospel with clarity and it could be heard by 30,000 people in Boston Common. Benjamin Franklin said, I wanted to do the math to find out how many people could really be heard. So what he said was he walked until he couldn't hear anymore, and he did the math on how many square miles this was, and he said he could be heard by 30 to 40,000 people. 
if they were all packed into this amount of land. And it was in the 1740s when George Whitfield came and he spoke and the gospel began to grip heart after heart after heart. And he found himself in Northampton. Northampton is famous for a place where a man named Jonathan Edwards was pastoring. And when George Whitfield began to preach in Northampton, lives began to be turned upside down. But Jonathan Edwards was left with how to disciple and how to care and how to continue to lead this awakening of the Spirit of God. And what I want to do as we hear that the psalmist says, when you are beside still waters, this shepherd also leads you into paths of righteousness for your namesake. What I want you to hear is when the Spirit of God awakens a people, lives are totally changed. And I want you to hear how in this, what was known as the first great awakening, just some testimonies of what it sounded like for the Spirit of God to grip a people, to grip a city, to even grip portions of a nation. So Jonathan Edwards, it was in June of 1730, and he was in a condition much like ours. The average age to get married had shifted from the early 20s to the late 20s and the early 30s. And in that time and in that city, what that led to was it led to great promiscuity. It led to people just being sexually free and having children out of wedlock with zero regard for God and His Word. It was rampant everywhere, and it was extremely common among these teenagers and 20-year-olds. But in June 1734, one of these 20-year-olds died. And Jonathan Edwards was asked to preach the funeral. And as he preached the funeral, he preached the funeral from Psalm 90. Five through six. This is the passage. Speaking about what God does. God, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. It was in this funeral message when the Reality and fragility of life hush the crowd because their lives were uniquely affected by their friend dying. And with that hush over the crowd, the fact that life could be taken in a moment, there was this sense that Edwards began to see the Spirit of God at work. And Edwards reported that young people, all of a sudden, they became serious and began studying the Bible and praying together in small groups. People who wanted nothing to do with God, all of a sudden, they began to be serious about God and His Word and prayer. And then later on, Jonathan Edwards began to fight that God would not be known in the head, but He would be loved in the heart. That he began to say that God is meant to be treasured. He's meant to be tasted like you taste honey. He is meant to be loved. And when he preached this message in August of 1734, here's what happened. What happened was, one of the town's most promiscuous young women was converted. And she began to reach out to her, what was called her rowdy friends. 
And the book that I was reading goes on to say, In his exuberance over the Northampton Awakening, Edwards began to write a work, and he explained what the effect of this woman being converted and then going out and sharing the good news with others, the effect that it had. He explained several ways the community had been changed. Everyone seemed more focused on eternity. Many new converts profess faith in Christ. The town exhibited better morals. Lead me in paths of righteousness. And church members showed higher regard for the Word of God. This began to be loved and a greater allegiance to having rhythms of rest and keeping God's commandments, specifically the Sabbath heart. What they also saw was that for the first time, churches began to be integrated. Blacks and whites began to worship together because the Spirit of God was at work, crushing racism and classism. And even Benjamin Franklin said, who was not a believer, who did not, although he was good friends with George Whitfield, did not embrace Whitfield's God, said this, it was wonderful to see the change that came on the manners of everybody who was around me. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if the whole world was growing religious so that one could not walk through a town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Just to hear people who were once cursing God now singing His praises. Missionaries were birthed out of this. A man named David Brainerd was birthed as a missionary to the Native Americans out of this movement of God. People began to evangelize people that they once called enemies. The Spirit of God was at work. And when God's Spirit moves, these are some of the things that happen. Friends, this should fuel our praying. This is not just something that happened in the 1730s. There was a second great awakening. And there's been awakenings all over the globe up until now. God is at work. But may we start praying for conversions, for the Spirit of God to convict people of sin. May we cease. May we cease living closet lives of Christianity. And start being lights for Christ where we are. God promises to work in His people. And He promises to do so for His namesake. What does that mean? It means we were created to shine as lights for how good God is. And we betray that purpose. We betray it when we give ourselves to things that don't satisfy. When we live one way here and one way when we're elsewhere. He wants us to repent. And He wants us to shine as lights for His name. Because when we are following Him, when we are living in righteous lives, then all of a sudden we shine. And we tell the world that God is better than anything else we could live for. He has called us to be lights. And so, we fight. We fight for faithfulness in our marriage. We fight to tell the truth. We fight to give ourselves to loving God. We fight to speak kindly and to build up with words of grace. We cultivate thankful hearts. We shun greed and gluttony. And we want to shine as lights by walking in paths of righteousness for His namesake. But one of the greatest barriers to walking in paths of righteousness is what the psalmist calls the valley of the shadow of death. 
It's hard to walk in righteousness when you feel so beaten down a lot. And this is why the psalmist goes here. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Not because they have been removed from the valley. Not because the enemies were pulled away, but because God is with them. You see that? Because you are with me. Your shepherd-like rod and staff, you are using all of your resources to comfort me. You're there with me. That's how I can make it through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray this over my kids almost every night. Joshua 1.9 Oh God, Make my kids strong and courageous. Keep them from being terrified or discouraged because you are with them wherever they go. That is the comfort that we can have even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That is not only walking through death itself our death or the death of another. It is also just walking through a valley where there was a sense of just darkness all around. Just walking through difficulty. You need not fear because God is with you. And so many of us, we struggle. We give excuses sometimes to not walk in righteousness because we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And He wants us to say, no, no, no. I'm your good shepherd. I'll restore your soul. I lead you. I lead you. I'm going to be with you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. And even when you walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll be with you. So some of you, you're weary in sadness. And the pain continues. The dryness spiritually seems to persist. But I want to tell you, light will come as you draw near to the Lord. I have experienced personally, globally and understanding suffering in general, I have experienced little suffering. But I have experienced some. But it's painful to me nonetheless, right? Suffering is painful whether you match someone else's degree of suffering or not. And so, to you who are teenagers to you who are students, to you who are single, I want you to know, I know what it's like to like someone growing up and them not like me back. I know what that's like. Painful. I want you to know that I know what it's like to try out for a team and to work with all of my might and to not make the team. Even when your friends make the team and you don't make it. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to want to be included so badly in a circle of friends only to not be included and to be left out. I know what it's like to wrestle through the agony of what to major in and have no direction and just try to figure it out. What degree should I pursue? What should I give my life to? And I just don't know. I just don't know. Friends, don't do what I did. I tried to fix it, so I changed my major six times in one year. Bad idea. Why don't you just wait? <laughs> just wait to hear from the Lord. Seek His face. Don't change your major six times. That's bad. But thankfully, I did get married. God did deliver me out of 
that. I desired to be married. Singleness is a great thing. Don't call it a curse. It is wonderful. Marriage is wonderful too. My wife felt sorry for me. And so she married me. We've been married almost 20 years. But I know what it's like to go through hard times in marriage when you don't like each other. And your home is characterized more by anger than it is by peace. And you don't feel like things will ever change. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to start something out of a dream. Start something from nothing. To dream a huge dream. To have massive ambition. Only to see it not turn out like you thought it would. Only to have life take turns that you never dreamed that it would. Friends, I know what it's like to be criticized. I know what it's like to condemn myself. And I know what it's like for others outside of me to criticize me. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be lied to over and over again. I know what it's like to want to be able to do something so bad only to have my personal weakness or my limits keep me from being able to do what I want to do. You just want the sickness to go away. You just want your mind to fire on all cylinders. You just want your energy to not give out. It's pain. I know what it's like to struggle as a parent to multiple ages and then to try to in the midst of the struggle, try to fix it, only to fail by getting angry, say things I would regret saying. And the pain that comes from my own failure and the pain that comes from the ups and downs of my kids' hearts. I know what it's like to see a child suffer and to pray with all your might that God would heal that child and for him to say, not now. And to not know when or if he's going to heal her. I know what it's like to wait. I know what it's like to have a job for multiple years. This is before I took this one. I know what it's like to have a job that you just wish you could get out of. And get on to what you were made to do only to find out that you just can't get out of the job. You've got to stay there. You've got to work. You've got to provide for your family. I know what it's like to have the bills coming in and the money not matching the bills. I know what it's like to not have enough money to pay off those bills and the bills don't stop coming. I remember one year in Minneapolis, we made 15 grand in a year. That's all we had. And we left Minneapolis with more money in savings than we started. I don't know how that happened. The Lord. Friends, I know what it's like to lose someone close to me to death. I know what it's like to have a crisis of faith. And to be filled with doubt in a season and skepticism in a season. Why do I share all this? It is not because I like to talk about myself. It is because... There's something else to the story. 
I have lived for over 40 years. And I can tell you without exception, although I know what it's like to suffer in some degree, I also know what it's like for God to be with me in every one of those instances. I know what it's like to experience God's victory in my life. Not just walking around in the valley of the shadow of death. I know what it's like for my God to meet me in the midst of my trial. I know what it's like to wait and to see Him astound the wisest, to humble the strongest, and to satisfy the thirstiest. I know what it's like for Him to communicate, I love you. Friends, the devil wants to eclipse the beauty of God in the valley of the shadow of death. He wants to eclipse the victory and the promises that God will be with you through that. He wants you to forget that and to lose sight of that. But I'm here to celebrate that I have experienced not only trial, but I've experienced victory. Day after day, I live in His grace. I see His promises come true for me on a daily basis when I have eyes to see it. I've experienced power in my life over sin. I'm not perfect. I sin a lot, but I've experienced victory. I have seen Him convict me and not crush me. I have seen Him answer countless prayers and show off His mighty power. I've seen people be stirred up on my behalf to give me encouraging words. I have seen God heal people in my life and heal me. And I have seen Him use my prayers to see other people healed. I have seen the faith of others grow. I have seen marriages healed. I have seen mine changed and healed. I have seen him draw near. I have been changed. I am not the same man I would have been were it not for the valley of the shadow of death. He takes us through the pain in order to make us happier. I know that feels counterintuitive. But you will be stronger, you will be wiser, you will be more humble, and you will be more filled with praise because you have walked through the trial than if you did not. I am with you, he says, and that is enough. And so, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not be afraid because the Lord is our shepherd. And he's not only a shepherd, he's a friend. As we end this sermon, verses 5 and 6 paint this one picture. God is a friend who wants to be with us. The image shifts from shepherd to a man who sets a table for us. In the presence of our enemies. A man who wants us to feast with him and to enjoy him. And this is all throughout the scriptures. This week we had a pray and plan with the pastors and while we were in this pray and plan, it's a time when we just kind of vision and dream and pray and ask God to move on behalf of the church and we try to vision for the upcoming year. As we were in that time, Pastor Travis shared a devotion just about how regularly throughout the Bible, eating was commanded of God's people so that they would understand three main things. One is that the walk of following God is never meant to be an alone walk, it's meant to be a together walk. And two, that when they sat down at that meal, it was meant to enjoy God and enjoy His provision. Meals regularly were this comment that we are to sit and enjoy God. And it's a, it's a 
It's a call that when you taste food, God wants to be enjoyed with all the senses. Every part of you to enjoy all that God is. That's why when he delivered them out of Egypt in Exodus 24, it says, behold God and eat and drink together. Why is that? Because God gives us physical pictures to help us understand spiritual reality. The feasting at a table was meant to be a picture of enjoying with all the senses who God is and His good provision. And now your tummy is ready for lunch. And will we think about that meal that we eat as an echo of that last day meal when we enjoy the presence of God? The meal is not just meant to be preceded by a prayer because it's what the religious do in order to get to the good food. It is meant to be a declaration that God is the provider of this and I'm going to enjoy Him. And when you get to eat with others, it's meant to be an echo of us togetherness, together enjoying the presence of God. Oh, that God would take the common everyday meal and turn it into a moment of worship. We need one another, and we need to enjoy His presence and His good provision. And so He says, He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Not when the enemies are gone, but while they're still attacking, while they're still at us. And it's meant to communicate that what? Where we had the enemies as winning, they're now captives. And God doesn't invite us also just to one meal. He invites us to a meal to be with Him forever. That's where verse 6 comes in. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This meal is not a one-time meal. It's a forever meal in the presence of God. And He is inviting us to that. Friends, in my personal walk, no greater promise than Psalm 23, verse 6. And here's why. When I, when I memorized, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, it didn't make much sense to me. When I studied the word surely, it means only. Only goodness and mercy will God do to me all the days of my life. Process that, your life through that grid. Only goodness and mercy is He doing to you. Only goodness and mercy is He doing to you. He is a good shepherd. He is a friend who spreads a table before you so that you can enjoy His presence. Even when your enemies attack you, he will be with you so that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to just wallow as a cast down sheep upside down, unable to turn over. But you can trust that he's going to restore your soul and he will be with you and he will win a victory through your life. He will change you. He will heal you. And he promises that he'll be with you forever. And that is the meal that I want to be a part of on the last day. When I'm with the good shepherd who wipes away every tear and leads us to the waters that are still and everlasting. Let's pray.